The dogs of India are conceived by tigers, for the Indians will take diverse females and fasten them to trees in woods where tigers abide, whereunto the greedy, ravening tiger comes and instantly devours some one or two of them if his lust do not restrain him. And then being so filled with meat, which thing tigers seldom meet withal, presently he burns in lust and so limes the living dogs who are apt to conceive by him, which being performed he retires to some secret place, and in the meantime the Indians take away the dogs, of whom come these valorous dogs, which retain the stomach and courage of their father, but the shape and proportion of their mother. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. So, Ian, that is quite a lurid story. I mean, appetites of all sorts. Where does that come from? Can you tell me a little bit more about this biologically unlikely anecdote? Well, it appears to come from a classical source, and it's gotten recycled through the Middle Ages and into a Renaissance source. So this actually comes from Topsell's natural history of four-footed animals. But he tends to repeat a lot of stories that he hears, like this one. But I picked it because a lot of the tiger lore that gets imported and recycled is very interested in sort of tiger sexuality and tiger breeding and tiger cubs. So I thought, well, this is sort of captures all of it. And also this ridiculous idea that this is how you get valorous dogs is by breeding them with tigers. It's so interesting because even today tigers are kind of associated with lust and with sexual desire if you think about, you know, any rock song from the like 1970s or 80s with tiger in the title. It's definitely about the sort of conflation of appetites. She's a man eater. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the appetite of the tiger is, uh, it, it seems to be a sort of a steady state thing, which I'm, I'm sure when we hear the medieval history of the tiger from you, that I'm sure that's going to be a part of it. Oh, for sure. So in the European Middle Ages, tigers were really more in the category of fantastic than real beasts. That is to say, nobody in Europe was likely to have seen one. Unlike lions and bears and ostriches and camels, they weren't animals that were kept in captivity that were imported and, and given as royal gifts. So um, when you look at the sort of inventories of medieval menageries, tigers never figure among the beasts. However, they did know of their existence. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is like you and I think of a tiger. We watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom when we were kids. We know what a tiger looks like. It's a tawny animal, orangey, uh, striped with black and maybe has some white around the face and the belly. And sometimes tigers can be other colors like white with black stripes or even there are even black tigers and there's this very rare kind of tiger called a golden tabby or strawberry tiger that's sort of like light gold with dark gold stripes. They're really pretty. Um, they're also extremely rare. They're all the same species actually but, but they're just sort of color variants. But always striped. Always striped. One thing you never see in the wild is a blue tiger with spots. And yet, and yet, every time you see a medieval illustration of a tiger, that's what it looks like. It's blue with spots. So 
why did they think that? You know, where where's that coming from? Because even the literary sources, as you already pointed out, that they had in the Middle Ages, the classical sources, where people had actually traveled to the Indian subcontinent or Central Asia, where there was actually a viable population of tigers at the time, um, and they had actually seen tigers, right? And so these eyewitness reports would get sort of filtered back to Greek and Roman writers. There's a third century account by a guy named Salinas and his collection of miraculous things that he describes a tiger as tawny with black stripes. So those were the kinds of literary sources that were available in the Middle Ages. However, however, in the seventh century, Isidore of Seville, who was a church father, a wise, learned man, for reasons we don't exactly understand, describes the tiger as a spotted creature. And he kind of does this in passing, so we don't know where he got that idea. My theory is that he could have seen a different kind of animal, a leopard, because those actually were kept in a few medieval menageries around the Mediterranean. And they have spots. And they have spots. So I think he was a little maybe misled. Maybe he had seen or knew somebody who had seen a leopard. And so, you know, it, it's an easy mistake to make if you've never seen either. But why, why is it that they were not, I mean, they kept so many animals. Why are tigers not making it into the menageries of the West? Well, there are probably a number of reasons for that. Not least that tigers are, in fact, very ferocious animals and very difficult to um, interact with in the wild on our terms. That is to say, anybody who is interested in tigers knows that they are not super interested in interacting with humans other than humans as just another species of, of prey animal. So I think that that might be part of it. It's very hard to catch a tiger. And in fact, almost everything that medieval writers have to say about tigers has to do with catching tigers and how hard it is. And this again, Which they never yeah, this again is coming from classical sources. And we have these sources that tell us, starting with, with Pliny the Elder in the first century CE, writing in his natural history. And then the story gets repeated in various ways, including by St. Ambrose of Milan, another church father writing in the fourth century. And the story basically goes that certain, certain emperors of Persia wanted to keep tigers in their menageries. So it's kind of associated with the exotic East, right? And um, in order to catch these tigers, what you had to do was find a female tiger who had a litter of young, and you had to sneak around, wait for her to go out hunting, pick up the baby tigers, put them in a sack, put them on your horse, and you need a fast horse for this, by the way. The hunter is supposed to pick up the baby tigers, put them in a sack, and then ride away as fast as he can. But he needs to have an additional piece of equipment, and that is either a reflective glass ball or a mirror. And the idea is that as he rides away, um, the tigress will chase him, of course, because she's intensely protective of her cubs. And uh, this, so far this sounds like semi-plausible, right? The next, right, right. the next thing that happens right. is when the tiger starts to catch up with the, with the uh, kidnapper, she, she can be sort of slowed down. If you throw this mirror or this reflective glass ball on the, on the ground, because she'll see her reflection in the mirror 
and think that it's her cubs. And it won't work for very long because she'll figure it out, but, but the idea is that it'll stop her enough that she, she won't be able to um, catch you. But you better have a fast boat waiting, is, is what um, you're told in these accounts. Because um, they can swim too, and they'll come after yeah, you. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that struck me about this story is that recently my teenager showed me a, a TikTok um, video in which some cruel individual had placed a large mirror out in the woods where they knew a bear, a grizzly bear, was hanging out. And in the video, the bear like sort of walks past the mirror a few times and then it sees the reflection in the mirror and it goes bananas. Not because it thinks that its cub is in the mirror, but because it thinks it's another bear bear, and it attacks the mirror as if it were another bear. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, right? About animals and mirrors and, and, you know, recognition. But okay, so that's the story um, that you hear for most of the time in the Middle Ages. And one of the most interesting sort of spins on this is in a bestiary that was written by a guy named Richard de Fourival. Um, it's called The Bestiary of Love. And Richard tells us um, through these sort of animal allegories about the experience of falling in love and trying to seduce his beloved like all of the sort of stuff he goes through in his efforts to win her. And it's really interesting because with the tiger story, he says, when I first glimpsed my beloved, I was more taken in and incapacitated by the sight of her than a tigress is by the mirror. So he compares himself to the tigress rather than to the hunter in this instance. I just think that's, really interesting. It's sort of a critique of, of how vision seduces us. It, and so it, yeah. it deals with all of that. And, and this is very like, not really about the tiger at all, of course. You know, the, the mirror, it's interesting that it's a mirror or a glass ball because you, you run into these paintings where there's things on the wall that are mirrors, but they are actually con- totally convex, right? right? So like mirrors were often like almost spherical to begin with. Yeah. So it's less less weird, I think, to think like, or a glass ball. I mean, like. Yeah, and it's interesting. So, like, a couple of years ago, I was doing some research on mirror cases, these ivory mirror cases. And everywhere I was reading that they had a metal reflective surface in them, like polished metal. But the question occurred to me, like, why don't any of those exist? Like, polished metal discs are not very destructible, right? You would yeah. have to intentionally melt them down or whatever. And, Okay, maybe most of them would get lost, melted down, whatever, but all of them? There's not a single one, you know? And so I ended up talking to this archaeologist in um, Switzerland who has basically all the evidence that we need to know that even in the Middle Ages, mirrors were typically made of glass. So that's one of those uh, historical misconceptions that there were no glass mirrors. And, and in fact, the thing about the glass ball comes from Ambrose of Milan in the fourth century. We know the Romans made glass. They, they were really good at it. Um, oh, sure. Roman glass is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, so, um, best there is. Exactly. So this glass ball, I'm imagining like not a, a lightweight thing, but like a, a rather heavy, dense, you know, object. But anyway, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, too, because the association of the tiger with the East is the other piece of this, right? Like, the idea that it, it belongs to this sort of exotic lands of the Persians, you know, there clearly is a kind of fascination with the tiger in the um, Persian Islamic world. So I just want to leave you with one sort of bridge to the, um, to the early modern period, which is that in you know, the 15th century, this Persian ruler who was actually descended um, from Genghis Khan and also from Tamerlane was born, he's a prince. And um, although his you know, birth name was not Babur or Persian for tiger, that became his name. And he's actually sort of considered the founder of the Mughal dynasty in India. So, in India, yeah, so. which is which is sort of where the, the tigers are. There, were there ever so, you know, like the 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 place that you hear tigers are normally from, and I'm pretty sure that this comes from the the Middle Ages is Hyrcania, right? right? So like the, you know, in the Renaissance they're always talking about Hyrcanian tigers. Right. Well, Hyrcania is in, you know, Iran, Persia, yeah. right underneath the Caspian Sea. Right. There have never been any tigers there. Ah. <laughs> Right, like no. there was never no never a thing such a thing as an Hurricanian tiger. No, no, there was there was a an animal known as a Caspian tiger, um, and in fact those animals um, were still present in that region in the 18th century, and oh. there's some evidence that they didn't go extinct entirely until like the 1930s. It's, that's a little known fact about tigers. I mean, if you think about it, they're Siberian tigers, right? And there's a, a long distance between yeah, Siberia yeah. and the Indian subcontinent. And so animals typically have a kind of range. And in fact, all of those animals are essentially the same species. They're subspecies. Yes, they are. So, yeah. um, Although I think the Caspian tiger might have been a different, right? Because it's extinct. Uh, yeah, they don't know very much yeah. about those animals. That population the, is extinct, I guess, is a better way to say it. Or as yeah. we should call it, the Hurricanean tiger. Yes, the Hurricanean tiger um, was a yeah. subpopulation, maybe, <laughs> of a subspecies. I know there are manuscript illuminations from Persia in that period that depict these. They kind of look like stripy lions to me, rather than tigers. But who knows, the maybe tigers. the Hurricanean tiger had a particularly impressive ruff or something. So tell me about these early modern tigers and what happens to these sort of medieval blue spotty animals in the Renaissance. So I have a list of the, the stuff that's sort of the fantastic lore that's still around. And I wanted to see whether like, I mean, maybe some of these are, I would bet some of these are, are also medieval. Like the idea that tigers cover their footsteps with their tails, like that's how they sneak away so that you don't see their tracks. <laughs> uh, that tigers hate the sound of bells. Huh. Uh, <laughs> um, and then there's this one idea that they're all female, right? There's no such thing as a male tiger. Huh. That they make more tigers by, you know, being con uh, impregnated by the wind because tigers are supposed to be super. Wait, nice. wait, wait, wait. Getting back to your original story, though. Yes. Female dogs. Female dogs. Are they being impregnated by female tigers? <laughs> No. So th this is a parallel story. It's like, apparently, some people say there's only female tigers. However, yeah. Um, 
Can't you see this yeah. argument, well, like, in a tavern scene in a Shakespeare play about, like, you know, right. whether, yeah. like, because yeah, it's sexy, it, yeah. because it has to do with, like, eating. I'm just imagining that Falstaff had a theory on tigers. On tigers. Not as far, not as far as I know, <laughs> but I could imagine that for sure. They're also this idea that they're innately modest, that they, and again, this contradicts the, the sex with random dogs theory, but, you know, that they only have sex in secret, right? Like that you'll never see them having sex because they're so innately modest. Yeah. Oh, that tigers taste like beef, apparently. This was a huh. lore thing. That's a variation on tastes like chicken, I guess. <laughs> of course. Yeah. They're always held up as like kind of icons of cruelty or ravenousness or like shocking uh, violence. And it's, it's worth noticing that in the classical tradition, Dionysus, who's kind of the god of madness and, and kind of crazy violence and things, uh, is often uh, depicted as riding a tiger. Although, again, classical tigers were actually closer to the real tigers than the, than the Middle Ages. Yeah. I mean, there's some things that tie. It's interesting that it, it sort of ties together. There's a whole bunch of things getting tied together here. You've got the kind of the cruelty of the tiger, which at least in the uh, early modern period, cruelty is often gendered female. There's this right. negative stereotype that women are somehow more cruel than men. Mm -hmm. So yeah, tiger, you know, like the, the tiger would somehow be inherently more female to begin with, and this idea that like maybe the tigers are all female, and then these all these stories about mommy tigers, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's all about the the mother, you know, like the maternal, the tiger as a maternal animal, except for that story about impregnating the dogs that we started. Right. With. Yeah. I mean, it is um, interesting too that. The, that they're both a sort of figure for maternal love and and a figure for a sort of bloodthirsty a very interesting combination like figuring out when when the fantastic tiger turns into the real tiger i have to go past my the my own kind of renaissance period into still early modern but like very late early modern period to get there and like we can use, there's sort of two things we can use as an index, right? We could use the stripes, right? Because like medieval tigers are spotted, modern tigers are striped, like something happens. Like when do the stripes occur? Like when, like when do they appear? Um, so stripes are one thing to look for. And then the other is you can use the spelling of tiger as an index as well. Oh, interesting. Because you can spell it with an I or you can spell it with a Y. And both spellings are, you know, like they both go way back, right? So like, there's a tiger with an I in way back, and there's a tiger with a Y, uh, right up to you know the late early modern period, but by and large, the closer you get to the modern, you know, tiger, right, the more you spell it with an I as opposed to the Y. So the the T Y tiger is antique, mm. right? It sort of like becomes this kind of like old way of talking about the tiger. And if you use something like Google's Ngram Viewer, where you can it gives you kind of rough ideas about like different spellings, right, and how those mm -hmm. work. The the tiger with an I took over right around 1755. Okay, right? so. so that's when the that's when the lines cross, when the TI tiger like takes off. Huh. <laughs> and uh, coincidentally, there's two other things that happened at that period. One is that the the British basically the the first like major moment where they take over India occurs in the Battle of Plassey in 1757. That's where they that's where they get Bengal, mm -hmm. which is where most of the tigers are, after all. So that 1757 Battle of Plassey, uh, suddenly the British are are like noticing uh, modern tigers. Mm -hmm. The other is 1758, which is where we get the first modern scientific description by Linnaeus, okay. 
you know, the father of taxonomy, right, is like has a description of the tiger as well. So like that's that kind of that period there. The stripes are interesting as well. So they appear, they really appear first in Linnaeus. So he's writing in Latin and he uses a word which does mean stripes, I guess. But the actual word stripe for tiger doesn't really appear until the 19th century. You get, what you first get is that like tigers have, first they have spots and then they have streaks or bars of color, right? So you, you're not going to find striped tigers until into the, into the 1800s when it becomes so conventional that I think if you like ask, if I asked you like, like, what's the first word that comes into your head when I say tiger, you'll say stripes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right? Like, well, that's not a thing, right? Until pretty late, even though they're clearly recognizing, you know, like the, the, the Bengal tiger with the bars and the streaks um, at the time. There is a lot of confusion. Tiger, the word tiger gets employed to describe a bunch of critters, including things that we think are leopards and panthers, even though they also had panther and leopard. And so you get writers saying, well, there's leopards and panthers, and then there's spotted tigers. And you can know, you know, they're different for these reasons, or this tiger is spotted, but it's not like the other, <laughs> the other tigers. Um, so there's a lot of kind of confusion about like where, what they even think a tiger sort of really is. Um, and when they when they finally decide that there is that the Bengal tiger is the tiger, they don't even say now it's the tiger. There's nothing else. They start start by calling it the royal tiger. Uh-huh. Right? So there's a lot of tigers. The one with stripes is the royal tiger. Okay. Um, which becomes the <laughs> Bengal tiger or the tiger royal, right? right so you like hear right. and it's like a special kind of tiger. It has stripes. And then they realize there is no other kind of tiger. This is the tiger. Yeah. This is this is all there is. So it happens really, really late, and it happens pretty quickly. One way to figure out, like, kind of when it's going to enter popular culture is by figuring out, uh, in English, for instance, when, when they uh, were kept at the Tower of London. Because the Tower of London has this famous menagerie. They had lions at the Tower of London for, like, you know, ages, right? So, like, uh, when you said people know what lions look like, they know what bears look like. Certainly, you know, Shakespeare's London you could see a lion, you could see bears all the time. Right. Uh, you couldn't see a tiger. But at a certain point, the menagerie at the Tower of London gets a tiger. So like, when does that actually happen? And I don't have an actual date, but I have a, I have a before, you know, like I have a period in which it has to happen. Okay. In 1741, there's a visit to the tigers in the Tower of London, which are, he's using the term tigers. Okay. And then he says, well, the two old tigers who are named Will and Phyllis, huh are marked with round spots like the leopard. Whereas those found in the East Indies are streaked all down their sides instead of having spots. So 1741, he's recognizing that there is this tiger with stripes, but he's also saying the tigers in the Tower of London have spots, which means, you know, like leopards because they, they are, or they're jaguars or something like that. And then 1774, there's an actual tiger in the tower, i.e. one described as having streaks. You know, Ian, you're not going to like this, because this is like me being a a French uh, art scholar and you being in the English world. But I'm pretty sure that Louis XIV had a tiger in his menagerie at Versailles, because there's a very famous story about how the Persian ambassador um, was impressed when they staged for him a fight between a tiger and an elephant. Now, 
Unfortunately, that description doesn't include whether the tiger had stripes or not. So, or spots. I'm sure it had spots. <laughs> but, um, but the the story goes, at least, that um, you know Colbert, his minister, had like as part of his dossier, his his portfolio of things that he was responsible for was getting these like super exotic animals and collecting them to the court. It was it was a, a famous entertainment of the 17th century in France. Well, I mean, you know, uh, like, <laughs> it's hard to know because they'll use tiger all over the place, right? right? right. Like when they're clearly not talking about the, the striped tiger. Right. And if it's super famous, I mean, tiger stripes are pretty distinctive. Yeah. I mean, like you see a tiger, you don't say like, uh, oh, it just looks like a leopard. Right. right. But this was the Persian ambassador. I mean, I'm assuming that he had seen a tiger, right? Because the Persian emperors kept. Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> but but again, you know, like which tiger are we talking about here, right? Because tiger was a catch-all term for large cats yeah, that weren't lions. Seems to be the problem. At the... Could be anything, right? Until <laughs> So like until you actually hear them saying, stripes. no, no, it doesn't have spots. It has stripes. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, um, so Linnaeus, the description of Linnaeus of the tiger, which is, this is the first quote unquote scientific description of the tiger, that Linnaeus' description itself um, conjures up some of this past stuff. Okay, so a tiger has a long tail, a body marked all over with stripes, as big as a lion, so far so good. And then he says, it is the most beautiful and fastest animal, and it eats humans, especially Indians. And then the male tigers kill their own children. Okay, so like embedded in that is this idea that it is the most beautiful and fastest animal, which is something from the early modern lore, like tiger lore. And then this idea that it is somehow particularly ferocious and dangerous to humans is, uh, that's also something that really kind of harkens back to the past. And you get this kind of repeated as well, right? So like the idea that the tiger is most beautiful, but also uh, most cruel and, and horrifying, that's that's something that you see like over and over again. So Goldsmith, you may, you may know Goldsmith, um, has a little, he like, he has a, this is 18th century, right? So like he's clearly talking about um, a modern tiger, but he's talking about it in ways that conjure up this kind of medieval tiger lore. He says that tigers partake of all the noxious qualities of the lion without sharing any of his good ones. To pride, courage, and strength, the lion joins greatness, clemency, and generosity, but the tiger is fierce without provocation and cruel without necessity. And then later he goes on about how beautiful the tiger is, and then he says, unhappily, this animal's disposition is as mischievous as its form is admirable, as if providence was willing to show the small value of beauty by bestowing it upon the most noxious of quadrupeds. Hmm that double you know like oh it's it's fast and beautiful but it's also like just a just a terrible animal it's yeah. just terrible in all in all sorts of ways do you know blake's poem the tiger yes yes tiger tiger burning bright <laughs> tiger tiger which by the way he spells with a y so yeah, it's he's clearly marketing it's like that kind of antique nature to the tiger but that poem plays into this idea that the tiger is both sort of beautiful and terrible which for you know a lot of 18th century writers was just uh, um, you know like a a problem or b that idea that oh providence is showing the small value of beauty right by giving beauty to this horrible animal Blake of course is saying 
no. The beauty of the tiger and its ferocity like are two like necessary poles that go together, right? This tiger poem is basically challenging like all the tiger lore that ever was, right. um, and, and including, you know, the, the real tiger. His tiger at the bottom of the page has stripes, but it's kind of muddy, depending on which uh, reproduction you're looking at. It's unclear as to how stripy it really was. But it's not spotted. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, there's a connection between colonialism and the sort of first scientific de description of the tiger and this sort of grappling with the idea of the tiger as both beautiful and incredibly deadly and, and fierce. And I feel like we that is still with us, of course, when we talk about tigers. They're, they're what's called, you know, charismatic megafauna, these like yeah. large, kind of fascinating and also terrifying beasts, like sharks or lions or that sort of thing. And so they again provide a like really good tool for thinking about how beauty and terror are related. And it's interesting because that seems a long way from the medieval conception of the tiger as this kind of figure for, um, I mean, literally as a tiger mother, like this, this ferociously devoted parent, but also a creature that is far enough from, from human nature not to recognize what a mirror image is and to be, you know, fooled by that mirror image as a monkey never would be right um, <laughs> at least in the medieval account so you know in some ways though that that gendering of of the tiger's ferocity is also about you know how to understand a kind of incomprehensible other and, yeah. and then tie that to the idea that orientalism in general associates the feminine with the East and, and with the exotic. And I, I think you start to see yeah. a bigger sort of cultural picture emerging for like the tiger. And then of course, you know, we can't do an episode on the tiger without thinking about the Tiger King, the recent uh, Netflix phenomenon. Which I have not watched. And I sort of refuse I have to. to admit, I haven't either, but I think don't think you have to have watched it to understand that it is all about sex and violence and the sort of, yes. the, the allure of the exotic and also the sort of uncomfortable, distasteful feelings that are aroused by the, by the association of humans and these beasts in, in a way that seems too intimate and, and inappropriate. So there's a lot of transgressive stuff Trans there. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> fascination, revulsion. Right. Yeah. So. Oh, in the. Colonialism. So you mentioned, you know, the East is gen is you know feminized, right? Yeah. In, in a way, but then that in the colonial world, Asia was like was often associated as you know like that form of the East was often associated with things like cruelty and violence as well, right? In other words, yeah. uh, but also beauty, right? So like right. that, you know, oh, it's they understand beauty, but they're cruel, <laughs> right? Like, well, right. okay, so the tiger stands in for you know like for your your view of the East. Yeah, as opposed to you know a European court where where as entertainment, you put an elephant and a tiger in a arena together and make them fight. I mean, that's not that's cruel right. at all. That's not cruel at all. No. <laughs> so, I mean, that's practically modern here, right? Like the thing about the tiger is that in order to get to the, the actual tiger, you, they're absent in all sorts of ways for so long and yet present in their fantastic form. Right. And then when they become present, 
as you know, like the real tiger, they're often treated as sort of the most fantastic of real beasts, right? Which is true today, I think, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Of, of the real animals, right? Like, which are the most fantastic? Well, people say, like, tigers are just fantastic. Right. Well, and tigers are real animals for now, but they're, they're desperately endangered as their, as their um, yeah. sort of natural environments are being lost and as uh, poaching is really taking a toll on the, on the surviving animals. So that's something to keep yeah. in mind, that some of the real animals of the 21st century may be only fantastical by the end of the century. By the end, right. Um, I think we'd be telling a very different story if we approached this from a East Asian perspective in this period or a Southeast Asian perspective where the tiger is such a important um, animal in terms of royal symbolism and, and the sort of figuration of the power of the emperor in China, for example. And I think, I think that might be a really interesting story to bring back a guest speaker for at some point. Um, yeah, right. The tiger from the other but, side. From the but other first side. we have to deal with the tiger's cousin, the manticore. Which is the man tiger get it yep. manticore the man tiger i know and a scarier more disturbing hybrid i cannot imagine so next up next time <laughs> the manticore if you enjoyed this podcast please check out our other episodes along with notes and transcripts and some fun images at realfantasticbeasts.com mm-hmm.